time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 478 for March 1st, 2017. And I'm your your host, Allison Sheridan. By the way, last week I said it was 476. It was not. It was 477. I worry so much about this and nobody ever notices. I could just tell you it's any old number. Hi, it's Chit Chat Across the Pond, number 2467. Anyway, our, our guest this week is Bart Bouchot's back with Programming by Stealth, episode 31 of X. I wish I was good enough at hex to figure out what the hex code is for this actual show number just to really mess things up. <laughs> but my hex isn't good enough. We should do that. We should do that. Hey, so I want to start programming by stealth uh, with something that I said on Twitter this week. I was working on my homework and I tweeted this out. Only in programming do you get to see stuff like this. Expected, true. Actual, true. D1 and D2 are the same. So true. Fail. <laughs> <laughs> I finally figured out that I had put in the string true and compared it to the Boolean true, which means, of course, those things are not the same and therefore fail. But it's sort of like yeah. arguing with somebody where you're you're actually in agreement, but you don't know that and you keep yelling at each other. Yeah, what do you mean true is true? What? <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, well, true is not true. If one of them is quoted and one of them isn't quoted, that is true. So it's a good way to learn, though, when you make that mistake. You, you probably, with any luck, you don't make that more than, what, a couple times a year? Uh, well, that, that's one I generally wouldn't do for a really good reason. Most of my programming is in Perl, but there's no concept of truth, so it'd just be one. <laughs> okay, you heard it here, kids. Perl is false. <laughs> well, or zero. It has no concept of zero either, or false either. <laughs> I have a feeling this show's already off the rails. Bart, how, are we going to make it through this week? You've been well, we'll class have a go anyway. <laughs> so we're going to continue our twin track approach. Um... So in JavaScript objects, I'm actually, it's not revision anymore. I can't use the word revision because we're going to learn something new. And that's definitely not revising. Okay. Uh, so, so it's not revision, but it is still prototype related. And our prototypes are going to get one final lick of paint. We're not, we're not fixing a bad smell. There's nothing broken. We're just giving them a little polish, a little bit of chrome around the edges. Just, you know, polish up those bumpers a bit, make it a little bit better. But we're not actually, there's nothing left. There's nothing broken that we are fixing. It's, we're doing something new. There's nothing broken in your code. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, okay. Um, and then Speak we're shifting focus to HTML forms, where we're going to look at uh, some ARIA stuff relating to forms. Last time we looked at ARIA in a very much a generic, here's the big picture, 10,000 foot view of ARIA. So I want to talk a little bit about some roles related to forms. I want to teach you two new HTML tags, field, field set and legend. And then I want to teach you about checkboxes and radio buttons. Ooh. And then we call it a day. Uh, that sounds fun. Yes. So let's, okay, so step one, let's have a look at it. Oh, yeah. There is a zip file, uh, which you can download. It's linked in the last paragraph of the introduction. That zip file contains the full code for my sample solution because it's really bloody long. So in the show notes, I have cut out everything that isn't part of this particular week's homework. Oh, I noticed it was really easy to find the part I was looking for. That's why I just scrolled a little bit and went, oh, there's the piece. I want to know how he did it. Yeah. So you see slash slash dot, 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 Anywhere where I subtracted code, it says comment dot, 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 dot. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on. Oh, um, good, good. So the full code, though, which will run, because obviously this little snippet here will not run. This is garbage on its own. So the full code is in the zip file, along with a sample HTML page we're going to be using as sort of a one-episode-only playground, sort of, kind of. 
Uh, basically, we're going to be running some jQuery stuff in the web console, and I want you to run it against my HTML. So that file is in there. And then there's a starting point for the assignment is in there as well. So anyway. Oh, okay. So are, we, are we starting with uh, something new? We're starting with my solution plus what we're going to talk about today. Oh, good. Added in. So I okay. guess what we're starting with is a little bit more than what you have now. Okay. Um, and again, people could take their own code and add in the little bit we do today together and use that as a starting point for the homework, or they can use mine as a starting point. I'll leave it entirely up to people to decide what they want to do. I don't do. know about yeah. everybody else, but I, I, I'm afraid I get to the point where I go, okay, well, I've got that working and I understand. I know I should have done it three times. Uh, close enough and I move on. So if I keep using mine, pretty soon it's going to be missing all kinds of stuff. That, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Uh, and the, the more it diverges, I guess, the more difficult it gets. So the challenge last time was to add uh, comparison functions into all three of our prototypes. And you said you like repetition. So this is a very yes. repetitive assignment. Um, so you'll see. So my starting in the time protocol, the equals and the compare to functions, I think are fairly self-explanatory. Uh, do I need to delve into them? I don't think so, because you had kind of given us the framework for that already. But, uh, I, you had, I can't remember which one I had done. It may, in fact, have been time that we did together, in which case this is very, un very, very, very repetitive. Familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I do when you do that, though, is I type it myself into my code just to make myself right. see the structure and say, oh, OK, there's supposed to be parentheses here and I'm supposed to do the underscore there and that that's um, yeah. that's, well, that's yeah, that's how you learn. So what we didn't do together was the is before and is after. And you did it in one line. I did it in like 47 lines, I think. Yours is... Okay. So <laughs> thinking early. about it, right, compare to tells us if something is less than, it's compare to returns minus one. If something is greater than, compare to returns plus one. So before is just minus one, really. And after is just plus one. So we've already done all the work. So hence I'm saying return this dot compare to of the thing we're comparing triple equals minus one for is before. So in other words, if the comparison results in minus one, then I'm going to say it is before. Yeah, I managed to make that into a lot of lines, Bart. <laughs> They're probably very similar lines to the ones in your compare to function. Yeah, well, I guess what I didn't understand was that I was able to pull that out and not have to say, you know, okay, if the, I was thinking about the date one when I did it, but if I was to say, um, well, I guess it was when I, I worked on date time for the, for the is before I didn't work on it for the, for the, well, actually I did try to do it on the earlier ones, but I boogered it up and then I said, well, let me try this over on the date time. And I felt like I had to go in and pull the date and pull the time separately and say okay if the date is the same then now you should go on and look at the time but you're saying we've already done that right compare to has already done all that work because compare to's job is to return minus one if they're less than each other so compare to got to start with the date check if they're equal the date are if the date is equal then it's got to go check the time otherwise it can return based on the date all that stuff you're talking about is in compare to and that is the yeah. that is the work of compared to, and compared to is just formatting the answer as minus one zero or plus one, whereas is before would like the answer as true or false. Yeah, so what we're basically doing is just saying if you got minus one, I'm going to make that true. Anything else, I'm going to make false. Well, that's no so fun. It, like, is you before know, as... and is after are just purely there to make your. They're just sugar to some extent, right? Just they're, to make they're the not code more readable. Writing, 
Yeah, they're to make the other people's code more readable. So the person using your prototype can make their code more readable because you provided is before. It's not actually doing anything different to compare to. It's just that it will result in nicer code. Because then you can say if t1 that is before t2. And that just reads nicer than if t1 dot compare to t2 triple equals minus one. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, it's funny when I was trying to go through and do the logic of comparing the dates and comparing the times, I was uh, I was getting it backwards and I was pretty sure it was backwards, but I couldn't see it. So I asked uh, Steve to just listen to me say the code out loud. And the whole time he kept going, what do you need compare to for? You've already got the answer. You already know. It's negative one. You already know that. Why are you doing it again? I said, because Bart told me to. That's why I'm doing it again. But I was actually doing it again, which right. I didn't need to do as yes. much. I have to think about this one. Yeah. Well, as a general rule, if you find yourself repeating code, it's a time to at least stop and ask the question. Yeah, well, I knew that. But I didn't know how to do what you did, so okay. Get well, there. it's very similar in concept to the fact that we will sometimes use our our two string functions might make use of other functions you've written before. It's something we have tended to do. Anyway, yep. I'll the date is almost identical to the time, so we can definitely whoosh by that. And that brings us to the more complex of our three prototypes, which is the date time. And the date time is always more complicated because our date and our time prototypes are objects that contain numbers. But our date time is an object that contains objects. And that little extra com complexity of having objects within objects changes things. That, that's always, that's an extra level down the rabbit hole, which means that our date time is always that little bit more complicated than the date or the time on the row. So my date time dot equals is probably the first one we should look at because we definitely didn't do that together last time. So it starts off the same. We're saying if it's not an object, just return false. It can't possibly be equal to us if it's not even an object. If the object isn't an instance of date time, well, then it also can't be equal to us because we're a date time. So, so why didn't false. you do that in one step? Why didn't you just say if it's not a, a type of object uh, I and... Yeah, I could have. Okay, because that's where I did it, and that seemed to work. Yeah, I just it just felt a bit scrolly, so I put them. <laughs> okay, it. okay, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're dead right. One thing and another is the same as one thing. If one thing, if one thing, yeah, it's the same. Okay. Um. So then we do all the work actually on one line, which is just return this dot underscore date dot equals object dot underscore date. And this dot underscore time dot equals object dot underscore time. In other words, if the date inside me is the same as the date inside what you've asked me to check, and the time inside me is the same as the time inside the thing you've asked me to check, then I'm equal to the thing you've asked me if I'm equal to. Okay, I completely call foul. Uh, that's foul. not how I did Why? it. How can you use a function inside of itself? How can you use equals when you're in the process of defining function? No. Okay. Equals. This equals is not the same equals. This dot underscore date is not a date time. It is a date. So that is PBS dot date dot prototype dot equals. And we're inside PBS dot date time dot prototype dot equals. That was the sound of my head exploding. I know. Good. So I, I, I said. This dot underscore date, right? This dot underscore date is an object. Yes. Yes. 
And it is an object with a prototype. And that prototype is pbs.date. You mean pbs.date.equals? No, no. P- okay, well, forget the dot .equals. I'm just saying this dot underscore date. This dot underscore date is an object. Yes. This dot underscore date is an object with a prototype. And this dot underscore date is an object with the prototype pbs.date. Those are all true statements, yes? Yeah, okay. You don't sound entirely convinced. <laughs> well, I, I want you to say one more word after pbs.date. Because it's always okay. pbs.date.prototype.something. You don't stop at prototype. Right. You put something after okay. that. And you're not saying something so after that. This that underscore date is an object. And then we are saying on that object, call equals. Yes. So which equals function gets called? Well, it's the equals function that belongs to the prototype that made this that underscore date. In other words, it's the prototype. It's the equals function inside the prototype of pbs.date. In other words, it's pbs.date.prototype.equals. That's the actual code running. Okay. So it's not so, the same equals function we're in the middle of building. It's a completely <sighs> different equals. Lordy, lordy, lordy. Well, we've You're going to be the death of me, Bart, with <laughs> naming everything the same thing. But I got you. No, no I, I know what you mean. No, I... I by design, right? Every, every prototype has a dot .equals function. They're named the same by convention. It's not me being awkward. No, no. Is, I, you call it that. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean you'll be the death of me because in, in, uh, you're evil in some way. I just mean this is going to kill me. But okay, so we say return this dot underscore date dot .equals and we're using the dot .equals prototype thing that we made. Yes. On date. In the date. In the date. In the date thing and we're passing right. so we're this is the part where we hadn't actually written it quite like this before i know you keep saying oh we've done it with two string and we've done it with uh uh the clone oh. but we haven't done it quite like this this dot underscore date this dot underscore date dot equals parenthesis obj dot underscore date so you're right. you're comparing the two of them in from the the prototype equals that you wrote before and yes. you're also comparing so if the date and the time are the same, then that would give you a true. Yes. Okay. Which is a very which is a same thing to say about a date time, right? If two date times have the same date and the same time as each other, I think they can be considered equal. Yeah. So mine is wrong because I was comparing them with less than and greater than things because I didn't know those were yet. Well, I guess I should have. No. Well, that yeah. was the problem. Th- solved last time right the objects can't just be compared to each other yeah bart and i looked at my code and we don't know why it works because it came up with the right answer so i didn't see that there was anything wrong with it i i think node.js is being clever now i haven't had time to test my theory but my working theory so node.js if you give it an object and you tell it to make it a string without actually explicitly saying to string node.js will go well let's see if there's a two string function i can use and if there is it will use it and I have a hard, I have the distinct impression that Node.js has gone, I'm being asked to compare two objects. Does the object have a compare to function? And is using compare to because we do indeed have a compare to in date and time because we just wrote them. So I think And then stringifying it for me? Well, it doesn't need to stringify because it's trying to get to it's trying to get to a comparison, right? Okay. So you're saying is this less than this? And that's the only way I can in my head make it work. What I, I like to, about this is I, I got the right answer by com- and completely missed the point, <laughs> which I, I think I get now. I, I think so. Okay. Good. Yeah. 
Compare Two then uses the very similar ideas, uh, but it, again, it's the same structure as our Compare Two in the other prototypes. But instead of using less than signs, we're using Compare Twos inside date and inside time. So we're basically saying if the object that was passed in isn't an object and it isn't an instance of date time, return nan. So mm-hmm. that's that's what we've always done. If if we got garbage in, we'll just throw nan out. Um, then we say, check if the dates are different. So that's the same thing we did in the other time, but we can't use less than or greater than. We have to actually use the compare to. So we're saying, I just stuck it into a variable because we're going to do this twice and I hate running the code twice so I just say var date compare equals is assigned equal to becomes equal to what did we settle on becomes wasn't it becomes yeah so this new variable I've made called date compare becomes equal to this dot underscore date dot compare to object underscore date so that's going to be so that's either going to be a negative one a one or a zero right and then I say if that compare is not zero return the compare so if it was greater than well, then it doesn't matter what the time was, it's definitely greater than. And if it was less than, it doesn't matter what the time was, it's definitely less than. But if the dates are equal, that's I when you want to keep yet. moving on. That's okay. when I got to keep moving on. So that's why it's if date compare not triple e- not double equal zero. So then if that's if we get further than that, we do exactly the same thing with the time. So we say var time compare equals this that underscore time that compared to obj that underscore time. Can I back? Can I back up? You can. Um, so this is the oh we're in compare we're not we're not in before sorry right, okay keep going to. all right so we did the same thing we say if the time compare is not zero then we return the time compare and at this point we're saying well if the date was equal and the time was equal then we were equal so return zero right so that's Wait. the same logic right we compared the dates we compared the times oh we've run out of things to compare well I guess we're equal to each other and then we're finished. Hang on, hang on. So when we got done with the return date compare, we've either got a negative one or a positive one. The only thing we don't have is a zero. Right. So then you do the same thing with time compare and you return a negative one or a positive one. Right. Then what? And then we've run out of things to try. Now, in theory, we might add something else in that could be different later. Why do you return those values? We never do anything with them. What do you mean we never do anything? The, the, the job of compare to is to return minus one, plus one or zero. So date compare is a minus one or a plus one. If we got to return it, right? The the, the job. Oh, I'm sorry. To... We've kicked out. I I forgot. Right. Okay, when we get a negative one or a positive one, we've kicked out. We know it's either uh, a positive one or a negative one. We're done. But if yeah, we didn't we get return. that, yeah. um, then we keep going. Okay. Yeah, we keep going. And if we if we've run out of things to try and we haven't returned yet, well, then we must be equal to each other. Yeah, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Now, my is before and my is afters are all very straightforward because I'm re- I'm just basically saying I've done all this work. The work was done in compared to, so I'm just saying return this dot compared to obj triple equals minus one for is before. Let, let me see if I can say what that means. So you've got before equals function of this obj return this dot compared to obj triple equals minus one and that means you're saying give me a true if compare to gave us a minus one because so true would be yes it is before exactly 
Okay. So a triple equals will always evaluate to true or false. So in other words, if our comparison gave minus one, then I am before. So true will be returned. And if our comparison gave anything else, nan or a plus one or a zero, it'll return false. Yeah, but I did it in a lot more lines. So mine's better. <laughs> well, it, it, that's an interesting argument, because if you're paid by the line of code, you could indeed make that argument. As long as I, I'm uh, I'm paid by typos as well, that would be a good math. <laughs> oh, that'd be an interesting contract to get. I wonder if you can get an SLA on that. Anyway, uh, can you tell I've been on ITIL training? Ugh. I don't know the difference in an SLA and an OLA. SLAs are bad. <laughs> we can have that Not discussion offline. It's also bad. Well, and all the the devil's in the details. It's so easy to write bad ones. It's a dangerous game. Yes, it it's a it very is. dangerous game. Okay. So that's that's the that's the uh, result of our assignment. And our prototypes are pretty darn complete. They have constructors, they have accessors, they have various functions for making strings of all sorts of different formats. They support cloning, and they have comparison functions. So we've done a lot of good work here. And yes. I'm going to teach you something new. Goody. So I haven't. I don't think I've given you this name. But we have, what we've done so far has a name. So there's, the, the first new word I'm going to give you today is a word that describes things we've already been doing. We just haven't bothered to label it. Now I'm going to teach you a label to stick on these things. So the functions we've written so far to build our prototypes can be divided into three categories. So we made use of some private helper functions. Anyone using our prototype will never see them. They were defined inside the self-executing anonymous function they don't exist in the global scope. They're only there for us to write our code. They're not part of the API. They're not something anyone else will ever use. So they're little private helper functions. They're unpublished. Agreed. We'll yes. use a few of them. Okay. Code reuse. Then we have our constructors, and they're just special beasties all by themselves. Constructors are weirdos. So we have those. We have one of those for each prototype. And then we have every other function we've written as part of these prototypes which we haven't stuck a label on, right? Two and those strings. other things being the like the, the clone and the compare to's? Compare to is before clone, two string, American, time 12, international, all those other functions we've written. They all have a label that we haven't bothered sticking on them yet. They are all instance functions. <sighs> okay. Because they act on an instance. We say ah. T1 dot to string when t1 is an instance of pbs.time right right they're always called on an instance of our prototype so they are instance functions because their job is to manipulate an instance and do something return a value change a value they're working they all, they don't make sense unless they're being applied to a specific date or a specific time or a specific date time. They make no sense in any other context. So they are instance functions. And the reason we haven't labeled them before is because that's kind of all we've known about. But I'm going to teach you about a different kind of function, so hence we've got to stick this label on. So to hammer the point home, we have a little code snippet here. var t equals new pbs.time16. So whenever you see the magic word new, I want you to think there is an object being built. There is an object coming into being. So T is an object. Okay. We can also say that T 
is an instance of the prototype pbs.time. And the reason is because what comes after new is pbs.time. So we built the object with pbs.time as a constructor, which means that forevermore, t that object is a pbs.time. Yes. Okay. And then we say things like t.time12. So time 12 is being called on an instance. Because T is an instance of pbs.time. So that's what I mean when I say an instance function. There we have it in black and white. Time 12 is being called on T. T is an instance. So that is an example of me doing what I said. Okay. Why is so this important that... to, to label these this way? Well, because there's about to be another kind of function we haven't met before. And if I don't explain this in great detail, then you're not going to see how it's different. Okay. And that's kind of important. So how does JavaScript know what time 12, where, where to go looking for time 12 in your code? The way it knows is because JavaScript has a look at T and says, dear T, what on earth are you? Oh, I see you're an object. And in fact, I see you're at time or pbs.time, and it then goes looking for pbs.time.prototype.time12 and runs that. Okay. So that is how JavaScript knows that when you say t.time12, the actual function is pbs.time.prototype.time12. It is because t is a pbs.time. So an instance function is always defined as prototype name dot the actual word prototype dot function name. So anytime you define something as prototype name dot the word prototype dot function name, it is an instance function. Okay. And you'll see that all throughout our code. It's everywhere in our code. PBS dot datetime dot prototype dot compared to. PBS dot datetime is the name of the prototype. Then we have the magic word prototype. And then we have the name of the function. That makes sense. That sounds like we've said this sort of before, no? We said it sort of before, but I'm being very explicit now. I'm being very careful in my words. (laughs) Okay. So it's always prototype name dot prototype dot function name. Is an an instance function? No. They're instance functions. Okay. If you see that magic word prototype, it's an instance function. Okay. And you know the prototype it belongs to because that will be over on the left, and you know the name of the function because that will be over on the right. Yeah. Okay. So pbs.time, the prototype.time12, function is time 12, and it belongs to pbs.time. Okay. Oh, on the left, you meant on the left of the word prototype. Prototype. Yeah. I was over there on the far left of the equals, and I was losing. Yeah. Okay. So prototype is your magic keyword. It's like, oh, I see the word prototype. Pay attention. And then you know what's going on. Static functions are different. We haven't met any yet, but I'm about to introduce you to the first one. So our... Everything we have in our prototype is for manipulating a specific date, a specific time, a specific date time. But the things we're doing, dates and times, sometimes they encompass broader concepts which don't make sense when applied to a specific date, but are still relevant. So a leap year, the concept of leap years, is relevant to dates. But a leap year isn't a date. Okay. But we, you know, so it makes sense that our pbs.date prototype should be able to tell us was 1997 a leap year. Right. That's something 
that we should be able to do with our code. But right now, we actually can't. The closest we can get to what we have now is to do something really dumb. Like we could add a function called pbs.date.prototype.isleapyear and then check if the year part of that particular date is a leap year. And then we'd have really ugly code. Now, I haven't written the function is leap year because it's a dumb way to write it. But we would end up with code like the following horrible snippet would be what our users would have to do. So var test year equals 1900. Var temp date equals new pbs.date one comma one test year. First of January in the test year. Mm-hmm. Arbitrary. If temp date that is leap year, console.log test year is a leap year, else console.log test year is not a leap year. That is not sane code. Right? Okay. That would be a weird way to add the functionality into our prototype. But right now, that's the only way we could do it because we only know about instance functions. So we had to make an instance and then call our function on the instance. But the instance is senseless. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. The existence of that instance, we don't need it for anything. We don't need it. And it doesn't even make sense because we're not interested in the 1st of January 1900. We're interested in 1900. Okay. But we've had to wrap it up with all this other fluff because otherwise our prototype just couldn't deal with it. Right? Well, no, we could... We could have called it uh, new pbs.date uh, parentheses test year. We didn't have to put the, because uh, we allowed for that. It would have had an arbitrary uh, day and month. Right, but okay, my my constructor takes day, month, year. So in my constructor, I guess I could have put undef, comma, undef, comma, test year. Oh, that's Sorry, right, because if you only put in undefined. one, it would be the day. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. So it'd be even stupider. <laughs> it'd be even stupider. And okay. undefined, comma, undefined, comma, test year would look even dumber. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? It's just, it, it doesn't work. It's just it's not good code. What we would love to be able to write is the following code. Now, I haven't written the function yet, but this is what I want my output to be. I want it to be possible to do this. Var test year equals 1900. If pbs.date.isleapyear test year, log, log. Okay. That reads properly. That is a sane way to write code. pbs.date.isleapyear. That makes sense. Sure. And you give it the argument of the year you want to check. That is a static function because it's not called on an instance. Oh, because we didn't make a new pbs.date. We just said, if we were to talk to test year with pbs.date, what would what would you say? But I didn't make one. Exactly. Ah, okay. So an ins- a, a static function does not work on an instance. It's just attached to the prototype because it's relevant, but it's not related to instances. Okay. So it's related functionality that we're adding in because it's useful to have. Interesting. Now we've got to write it, right? So I've just said I wanted to be possible to do this, but <laughs> oh. we haven't actually written the function pbs.date that is leap year. So let's write that function. All right. And the good news is it's actually, it's named exactly the way it's used. So to define pbs.date that is leap year, I say pbs.date that is leap year equals function. Okay. So that's nice and simple, right? You like, you know, th- I do. this is actually sane. This is sane, which is good. Now, so our function is going to take one argument, which we are going to call y. All right. Like a perfectly good name. Year. So the first thing I want to do is I want to make sure that what we were passed is even possibly considerable as a year. So I'm just using a private helper function we talked about weeks and weeks ago called is valid integer. They're saying if not is valid integer y, throw a new type error, the year must be an integer. Okay, so we've sorted off if it's not if it's not a sane year. 
then we do the work. If the year is divisible by four without a remainder, our modulus friend here, so y modulus four triple equals zero, then we got some work to do. I love modulus now, by the way. Yay! <laughs> now that I see I where it's useful. Yeah. So at this point, the year is divisible by four, so it might be a leap year. Is it divisible by 100? If it is, then it's a century. So it still might be a leap year, but it might not. Is it divisible by 400? <laughs> return true. Otherwise, it's divisible by four, but it's not a century. Return true. And then finally, if we got to the end of the function, we haven't hit any actual successful way of being a leap year, so we must not be a leap year. Return false. Don't you think the whole concept of how to figure out if it's a leap year was designed by committee? <laughs> it was. Pope Gregory set up the committee. <laughs> Somebody should have just said, okay, you know, once every 400 years, we're just going to add like a day and a quarter. Everybody just live with it. <laughs> well, a quarter day for a century would ruin things a bit. What do you mean I got to get up in the dark? <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. Well, I mean, it's like India. They just sat down and said, okay, we don't want to have a bunch of time zones, so we're just going to pick one. And it's this weird, I mean, this massive country with one time zone down the middle. Yes. Yeah. That's okay. So, I want to draw your attention to the very simple pattern for how you define a static function. Prototype name dot function name. So, pbs.date that is leap year. Prototype name pbs.date is leap year name of function. pbs.date that is leap year. Nice and simple. And all static functions will follow that rule. Name of prototype dot name of function. Oh, thank you. I was getting really confused because I was reading your text, but you were explaining what an instance function. That was prototype name dot prototype dot function name, and this is just going to be prototype name dot function name. Exactly. So okay. that's how you tell them apart. Okay. So we can test our little function. We can say console.log pbs.date that is leap year 1900, and it will tell us that is not a leap year. We can do it again with 2000. That is a leap year. 2001 is not a leap year, and 2004 is a leap year. So we have now written code for testing if something is a leap year, and we've added it to our date prototype in a sane and sensible way as a static function. Yes. Now, in you my didn't teach code, us this first because this is really easy. <laughs> this is only really easy after we have spent weeks playing with objects, because otherwise this would have made your head explode. I don't know. Yeah, probably. I've been afraid of it for quite some time, if I'm honest. <laughs> I've been putting it off until the very end. All right. Um, now, in my code, which is sort of been using as a starting point for assignments, I have a helper, a private helper function called isValidDMYCombo, whose job is to figure out if a given day, month, and year combo is sane. And part of that function, if the month is February, it has to figure out, do I give it 28 or 29 days? In other words, part of that code is actually doing very similar stuff to this is leap year function I've just written. Like yeah. very, very, very similar stuff. Which means we have code code copy-pasting going on. And code copy-pasting going on is one of those smelly, stinky things we don't like. Right. So I should now refactor my isValidDMY combo so it uses my shiny new static function. So that's what I have written here. And notice how the line has gone from 29 lines to 15. And it's also way more readable. Wow, and that's so, even with a blank line in it. <laughs> Even with a blank line in it. So I'm basically saying if the month is two, then just call our new pbs.date that is leap year function. And then if that returns true, then we say that the month has 29 days. Yeah. And then we're done. Yeah. So 
Well, you, didn't, that, you didn't include no. your big old lookup table in here, so that's why I didn't it's so short. The lookup table again. Okay, yeah. good. We we make use of it there in line four. Yeah. Right? No days in month equals days in month lookup M. Right. I love my lookup tables. Okay, so as a challenge, I would like you to write another static function which is similar but not the same as my static function we just written, and this is called leap years between. So pbs.date.leapyearsbetween, and it should take two arguments, which should both be years, specified as integer numbers. And what it should return is an array with all of the years in between that are leap years, and I'd like you to treat the dates inclusive. So if I ask you for pbs.date.leapyearsbetween2000,2001, I'd like you to check 2000, and I'd like you to check 2001. Okay. If you give me pbs.date dot leap years between 2000 comma 2000 i'd actually still like you to check the year 2000 and then maybe return a one element array or a zero element array rather than having a hissy fit but if i ask you to return the leap years between boogers and snot i'd very much like you to throw an exception (laughs) i throw an exception to that okay good so that's the first static function and you'll know it works if you get an output that looks like the following when you run the code saying you'd like to leave years between 2000 and 2100. You should see 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012. You get them, you see them all there. Right. And notice it doesn't include 2100 because that is not actually a leap year. Because it's not divisible by 400. Exactly. And it is divisible by 100. <laughs> All right. So just like 1900 wasn't a leap year, neither is 2100. So that's yeah. why it's not at the end of the list there. Okay, so when you've done that, you'll have had done one static function. So now, when that's done, I'd like you to do lots more of them. So we already have is equal, and we have an is equal in each of our three prototypes. And is equal is an instance function because it's checked if one object is equal to another. So the instance is what you're calling is equals on. So t1 dot is equal something else. And sometimes that makes sense. But imagine you wanted to compare if four times were equal to each other. That would be quite tricky with, is, with what we have at the moment. Yeah. So I would like you to write a static function called r equal which will take at least two arguments, but as many as you like. So remember our arguments array lets us have arbitrarily many arguments? Yeah. This is stretching yeah. you back a long way now. You're going to have to read back in your notes here. And I would like you to return true if all the arguments passed are equal to each other or false otherwise. If any one, if any one is not equal to the which one of these is any not like is not the other thing? Once there's any non-equality okay. at all, or if the arguments are garbage, if anything goes wrong, if it's absolute, you know, it basically return me false if anything goes wrong, or return me true if they're all equal to each other. Okay. All right. All Whether it's two of them or 25 of them or 2,000 of them. I'm sure I'll have no trouble that. unless Dorothy doesn't let me cheat off her paper. Well, this one takes thinking about because I'm making you use something you haven't used in weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, which is the arguments array. Hmm. Okay. Every function gets this little magic array called arguments, which is all the arguments. So if you've got 25 arguments, the arguments array will have 25 things in it. And I would say a valid approach would be to take the first one, see if it's an object, see if it's 
the appropriate type of object. And if it is, compare it using its dot equals function to the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one, the seventh one, until you run out. And if you ever find a false anywhere in your comparison, just return false. If I give you 10 things to compare, take the first and make it your standard. Oh, yeah, yeah. If any of them don't if match. If you ever fail, you're done, you're finished. Yeah. If the second one is the same, no point in checking anymore. So that's um, the approach I took my solution to this. Okay. Which I have written because I always write my own solution before I set you the assignment <laughs> so that I know it's possible and that I haven't forgotten something. Yeah. So that was the approach I took. Make the first one my meter stick, my yardstick, as you guys would say. And compare everything to that yardstick. Where are we getting the array to compare, though? It It's going to be the arguments array. So every function, just like every function has the magic variable this, every function contains the magic variable arguments, which is an array of all of its arguments. But where are we getting the arguments to compare as a test? Okay, well, you can see in my test code, I'm saying console.log, say on line uh, 17, say. Console.log pbs.date.r equal d1, d2. Okay. Okay. And d1, d2, we, you defined them. Okay. And the next line, we're comparing d1, d2, and d3. Okay. I could have written more to compare d4, d5, and d6, but that, you get the idea, right? Two yeah. or more. So I, I didn't go completely potty. Two or more. <laughs> now, you can use your own code as a starting point, or... You can take from the zip file pbs31 challenge starting point.js. And right. challenge starting point.js contains my is leap year function. Oh, that's good. Which will be quite convenient for leap years between. <laughs> yeah, that'll be nice. Okay. So we started a revision of prototypes by me giving you a six step algorithm, just a six step process to follow. Well, this is, we're now finished with our revision of prototypes. And uh, we now have a nine-step process I want to tell you about, which is very similar to our six-step process, but a few more details. So whenever you want to write a prototype, step one, gather your requirements. And you want three things. What data does the object need to store? What instance functions do I need to provide? And what static functions do I need to provide? Hmm. So then you'll know what you have to write. Step two, initialize the namespace with a self-executed function. Step three, write your constructor. Step four, write your accessor methods, one for every piece of data. Step five, write your dot clone function. Step six, write your comparison function. Step seven, write those instance functions you recorded in step one. Step eight, write the static functions you recorded in step one. Step nine, provide a two-string. Okay. So I, I understood everything you just said. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that, okay, so that is our final finished. I, have, I am not hiding subtlety from you. I am not shielding you from any more information. That's it. Wow. So we're done. We're JavaScript programmers after we finish this week's assignment. We're good? Well, we have the ability to create prototypes to represent anything arbitrarily we'd like. That's certainly a very important skill. Okay. There are other very important skills. So... I guess I may as well tease you now with the next bit of JavaScript before we switch mode to HTML. So the next thing I was going to do was going to be test-driven development. And yeah. then I realized, I realized something. Jill has been prodding at me behind the scenes. She may not have been prodding at you, but she's definitely been prodding at me that 
I need to do another piece of revision before we do test-driven development. We need to have another look at exceptions. Throw, try, and catch. Yeah, she's written to me about those, and I don't quite understand them, so I was waiting for you to tell me about them. But I I still wish you had taught people test-driven development ahead of time, because every time you give an assignment and you give me the test, I look at your tests and I say, okay, how can I write that as test-driven development type test so that I can see how to do what I'm doing? Not, not, I'm not doing the fundamental idea behind test-driven development, which is write your test before you write any code, but I am using those skills to test the code. So That's a difficult argument to have. Well, yeah. When is the right time to teach people that software engineering technique? Yeah, well, I, like I said, I'm... I'm just using it as the test part that I think her her method of testing is it makes more sense to me. It it is easier for me to read the errors and say, well, I didn't do that right. Right. But one of the things that we should be testing for with our test driven development is does do errors get thrown when we expect them to, which is the I think it's a cert throws, I think, is the yeah. test. development. And until we understand throw, try and catch a cert throws makes no sense. Yeah. OK. All right. So that's why I want to do it in the order I'm doing it. So next time we're going to look at this throw, try, catch. Okay. Those three magic words. And then we're ready to do TDD. Good. Okay. So let's switch gears. Take that bit of her brain, put it aside. Done with that. HTML forms. So last we met her friend, the HTML page. We had just learned about ARIA and that ARIA works around this basic concepts that there are roles. A particular element on a page can have a role. So you might have a div which has the role of banner. You might have a paragraph which has the role of main. You might have another div that has the role of footer. So you have this concept of roles. And then you also have these concept of attributes which basically tell a screen reader something about a specific element. So aria minus hidden tells the screen reader, ignore this. So we put an aria hidden on our little uh, Fonticon thingies, not Fonticon, yep. Glyphicons, or glyph icons last time. Right. Fonticons. Uh, our font awesome Glyphicons. So we told the screener to ignore them with the ARIA minus hidden. So they're the basic building blocks of ARIA roles and attributes. So now let's look at forms. So it will be really useful in a screen reader to be able to jump to a form. It's the kind of thing you should be able to jump to with a screen reader. It's, it's, it is a landmark within the page every bit as much as a banner is a landmark or as a navigation bar is a landmark. So that's why we should wrap our form in some HTML tag and then give it the role form, which simply tells a screen reader, this div contains a form or this paragraph contains a form or this link list, or sorry, UL contains a form, whatever. Some tag that holds our entire form Give it the role form, and then the screen readers know, ah, this is a form. And and you need to to know that it's a form because... Well, it's the kind of thing a screen reader should be able to jump to, right? Uh, Okay, okay, sure. Right. Now, there's there's one exception. If your form's job in life is as a search box, you give it the role search. Oh, interesting. So in Aria land, there are all other forms on the planet, and there are search forms. Okay. Any other role on the planet gets their old form, but search gets their old search. Huh. Now, if your form is complicated, it might actually have multiple sections. So you might have a text input and a radio button that together do something. 
enter your name, is that the name you're given on your birth cert tick? They might be related. I'm not a great example, but you know the way on a formula often yeah, see chunks yeah. of related pieces. Sure. You should wrap those in a tag and give it the ARIA role group hmm. so that the screen reader knows that these things are a thing and these things are a thing. Now, I, w- I want to interrupt for just a second because I think, I think it'd be easy at this point as, as people are learning to say, God, you know, we're having to do a lot of stuff for the screen readers. This is a waste of time. But when you're creating that form, you're probably putting like a little box around it to tell somebody visual visually that that is a group of things that go exactly. together. Or you're indenting that checkbox because to let them know that it goes with that 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 form field. Uh, so it's not like it's extra. It's it's what you're doing anyway. You're you're delineating those things separately for the visually capable or able. Yes. And uh, and do the same thing for those with screen readers. Makes exactly. Sense. And it is, I mean, it is very simple. Role equals group. Role yeah. equals form. Role equals search. It's not a lot of code. It's not difficult code. It's just remembering that when I make it visually obvious, make it screen reader obvious. Yeah, just do them at the same time, not extra. At the same time. It's part yeah. of the same thinking. It's part of the same brain action. Yeah. Now, yeah. you mentioned, now, ARIA goes one step further than that. It doesn't just say that you should say this is a form. It also says that you should tell the screen reader which piece of text on the page describes that form. Because the chances are, when you're looking at it visually, it will say login form. Or it will say what it is. There will be something visual on the page that says that you're signing up for a magazine. Or that you're checking out. Or that you're logging in. Right. So that text will be on the page somewhere. But Aria would like you to say that text is describing this form. Okay. Because the screen reader knows that when you jump to it, it should read out loud, login, or it should read out loud, checkout. Okay. Because if you're with a screen reader, you want to know, why am I giving them my address? Oh, checkout. Actually, yes. Okay. That is sane and reasonable. Right? Right. And you do that with an attribute called aria minus label to buy. I don't know why, but when I see that in text, it looks like label lady to me. Every time I've read it, it's your kind of aria label lady. So you would say role equals form space aria minus labeled by equals. And then you put in the ID of the thing that has the text. Oh, okay. Okay. So as you're saying, this is a form, you're also immediately saying, and here's the label. So that means you have to give the text a a, a label ID too. You do have to give the text an ID. Okay. Okay. And I'm using the word label in the English language sense. You could use a label tag, as in open bracket label, some text, close bracket, but it is equally valid to use a H tag or something else. Because realistically, the chances are you have a header in front of your form that says what the form is. Okay. So it's perfectly fine to use that as the labeled by. But you might not have a heading for the next section, which is, um, is your, um, is it your ship to address the same as the address on your credit card? That that might not be a heading. It might just be another section of text. Might be, but usually, actually, as you're scrolling down through a checkout form, it'll say shipping address, and then a whole bunch of inputs, and then it will say um, payment, right. and then it will have your sure, credit card. Sure, but those aren't necessarily headings. That's all I'm saying. Okay, no, I'm just saying whatever, they will be on the page, and yes. they will be in some sort of tag. And right. it doesn't matter what that tag is. It doesn't have to be the label tag. Okay. It is a label in the English sense of the word. Yeah. Gotcha. Not the strict label tag. Okay. Now. That's all the ARIA for today. So say what it is and, and say where the label is. Finished. Great.
Now I want to introduce you to two very useful tags. So you've talked about a form is usually inside a box. And in fact, it's usually inside a box where the label is superimposed on the top border and inset a bit from the left. Yeah, actually, it usually Yeah, you've is. seen that everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's an HTML tag for that. Oh, really? The tag that does that is the field set tag. Hmm. Field set, and then your form goes inside the field set. And then the very first thing inside the field set tag should be a second tag called legend. And the legend is what goes into the into the overlay. So open the field set tag, open the legend tag, type your title, close the legend tag, put all the rest of your form in, close the field set tag. That is really interesting that that's that standardized. That is that Because I, I had it in my head the minute you said it. I, I could picture it. You saw. Of course yeah. you saw. And it's not just on the web. Windows, Windows, uh, Windows certainly Windows 3.1 use exactly the same look. Uh-huh. Or it's a system preferences thingy, which it doesn't call system preferences, but you know what I mean. Control panels or whatever. Control yeah. panels, yeah. And the other thing to say is that field sets can go inside field set. Oh. So did you ever see a form which is a big box and then little boxes inside it? Sure. That's just field sets inside field sets. So if you want to do the ARIA thing, it makes an awful lot of sense to say field set role equals form or field set role equals group. And then for the legend tag, give it an ID and then say ARIA labeled by the ID of the legend. Then you have something that's visually perfect and that works on screen readers. Cool. So the field set and legend tags are brilliant for this kind of thing. I should also say that they're so brilliant at it that a lot of screen readers default to just assuming that a field set and a legend are labeling and containing a form. So they oh, make okay. the assumption, even if you leave out the ARIA. But the ARIA spec does not say that that assumption has to be made. That is something the vendors are doing of their own choice. It's not part of the standard. So I would say don't rely on that default. Sure. Follow the standard. Actually give it the role and actually say what the label is. Right, right. So in my examples, you will see me do that. And I will give you an example in a moment, but I'm going to ask you to sit tight for a little bit more until I show you the example. <laughs> you know I opened the example and looked at it already, right? <laughs> okay, that's fine. So you've seen the boxes. So you believe me that they work like I say they do. Yeah. But I just don't want to look at the code right now in a second because I want to do a little bit more telling before we do looking. So one thing I want to interject there, when you're, when you're doing something like this, think about the person on the other end as your customer. You you want your customer to do something for you. Uh, yes. So a lot of us, it's really easy to think, well, they should, they should, blah, blah, blah. You know, they should know, they should whatever. And and in reality, you want to make it as easy as possible. So you want to make it visually where it's really obvious, I should click this box to make this happen. And yes. if they need to do it with a screen reader or with their eyes, it needs to be obvious. And this is the tools you're teaching us is how to make it obvious. If you depend on the, on the, um, browser companies to just take care of you because you're lazy, you may miss an opportunity with a customer, right? You might yeah. not get somebody to do what you want them to do because you're giving them a form. They don't want to fill out this form. Trust me, they don't. But you want them to right. fill out this form. Yeah, whatever it is, you want it from them. Yes. <laughs> or you wouldn't have it on your webpage. Enter email here. <laughs> I want you on my newsletter. I want you. I want your details for some sort of database I'm keeping. I want your Survey. shipping address. I want your credit card number. I want something from you, or I would right. not have this box here. For you Make to it as easy in. as possible for them. Precisely. 
Now, I have obviously been, I, I was on my ITIL training this week, so my head is full of ITIL, and it is hammered into me that users are not customers unless they pay. <laughs> so in, in ITIL world, you have the customer who is the person who writes the check, and you have the user who is the person who uses the system, and they may or may not be the same people. Yeah, see, I worked for a government contractor, so everybody's a taxpayer. Everybody was my customer. Everybody was my customer. Whatever I was doing, somebody was my customer. They they were my customer. I like that. Yeah. Anyway, so we have already mentioned when we first introduced forms that HTML forms come from an era when every time you submitted a form, it was sent to the server. The server did something and gave you an answer. So hence, we had the concept of a submit button. And we have to put that little hack in that says action equals JavaScript colon void thingy. That blob that I told you to just put into text expander. Right. Because that stops the form submitting. So the fact that forms were designed to be submitted is something we have to keep in our head. Because forms don't make sense unless you know that's where they came from. Okay. Now, if you're designing a form for submitting data, then... That data has to be encoded somehow and sent to the server. The whole job of forms reading was to send data to the server. So what data? How? So everything in a form, whether it's a checkbox, a dropdown, a text area, anything in a form, always collapses to a name-value pair. Hmm. HTML forms turn whatever frilly stuff the user sees into name-value pairs. All forms collapse data to name-value pairs. That okay. is what a form is. Okay. It's a machine for making name-value pairs. Makes now, sense. you've probably seen these because one of the ways of, now it's, it's one of, it's not the only, one of the ways of sending data to a server is to stick it onto the end of the URL. You put a question mark which says, I'm about to give you form data, and then you have name equals value, and optionally, and name equals value, and name equals value, and name equals value. You've seen URLs like this. Your affiliate link is a URL like this. Amazon.com, question mark, tag equals, com 20 I'm sure I, that has a meaning to... I'm not sure why there's no T in it, by the way. I've never been able to figure no. that out. On the German store, there is a T. Huh. The British store, there's a T. There's a T. Anyway... So that it question mark says, I've got a form, the name is tag, the value is httpbodfee.com. Exactly. And if there was a second piece of data, it would be and, name equals value, and name equals value. Oh, so yeah, I've Amazon, seen them where they're yeah. really long, with oh, a yeah. bunch of ampersand. Okay. That's all that's going on there. So everything on a form becomes these name value pairs. That's, that's what the visual thing is there to make a name value pair that's going to go to the server. And that will make the HTML we do for checkboxes and radio buttons make sense. Okay. Name value pairs. They have to be name value pairs. So now that I've said that, now we can actually do what I want to do today, which is checkboxes and radio buttons. So the two simplest possible inputs on a web page, which involve the least effort by your user, the simplest one of all is the checkbox. It's either tick or it's not tick. It is a Boolean value. Check, not check. On, off. Yes, no. Agree, disagree. It, it's just, it is a really simple thing. And all the user does is they click it or they don't click. A radio button is marginally more difficult. An individual radio button is a checkbox. But the reason they're interesting is because they come in groups. A radio button group is what we call them. 
And do you remember when car stereos had a thing where you had like 10 channels on the oh, front? Oh, yeah. And you push in channel one and any other channel that was selected would pop out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you pushed in channel seven. Oh, channel is that why they're called radio buttons? That's why they're called oh, radio buttons. Oh, that's funny. Because, <laughs> yeah, you push one, the other one unchecks. Exactly. So in a radio set, zero or one will be checked. Never any less than zero, because that makes no sense at all. There are no imaginary radio buttons. I does not come into this. Um, and you can never have more than one. So there could be none checked. The radio could be off. Or there could be one checked. But there can never be two. Okay, you said it uh, couldn't be zero, but it can be zero if you never press any of no, them. I said it couldn't be minus one. Oh, okay. I missed it. Because that makes no sense. The yeah. Universe would just explode. Okay. Right? <laughs> There are none or one. So you could have a hundred, a hundred radio, uh, a radio button group of 100 radio buttons. It's still only one you're allowed. Okay. None. I'll so never forget that because of the radio buttons. <laughs> yeah, they're physical. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have trouble with radio buttons because their their cars are too modern. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't have radio buttons on their radios. Right, I mean, right. televisions have them as well. But nowadays, my television has no buttons. Right, right. No, I don't think it has any buttons, actually. Yeah, no, I think about it. You're anyway. starting to sound like an old man. I love it. <laughs> I am starting to sound like an old man. So that's the analogy, right? That's what we've got to have in our head. That's the model. So checkbox and a radio button group. So let's start with checkboxes because they are the simplest. The HTML tag we use is the input tag. And we make it into a checkbox by saying input type equals checkbox. And then because everything is a name value pair, we say name equals a name, value equals a value. Now, when that form is submitted, if their checkbox is checked, the name value pair goes on to the URL or whatever. Huh. If the checkbox is unchecked, the name value pair never comes into being. Oh, okay. This causes it to exist by them clicking it's, it. Huh. If you click it, it is in the data. If you don't click it, it is not in the data. So now, actually, I'd like you to open up the sample page. Because what the sample page does is it has one, one checkbox and a radio button set and a button. And what the button does is print out for you to see the form data. Ah, okay. So let me uh, find my own page here. Drag and drop. PBS31.html. There we go. Into Oh, Safari. I did not want you to make that a favorite. I want you to open that. <laughs> I hate when drag and drop doesn't work. No, don't. There we go. There we go. Okay. So at the moment, when you load the page, the radio button has yes checked, but the checkbox is completely unchecked. Right. And the form data is just nerd equals yes, because the, the radio button will come to later says, are you a nerd? Yes, no, maybe a little. Uh, <laughs> By the way, I think it should always return yes, whether it says yes or maybe a little, because if you said maybe a little, you're still a nerd. You could do that, actually. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. We'll do that in jQuery later. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> So now if you tick the I agree to something or other checkbox and click regenerate form data, you will see that toss underscore agree equals yes has come into the front of the form data. Yeah, so in, in Bart's code that he didn't describe, when he wrote the name value pair that, that goes with the checkbox, he wrote name equals, quote, TOS for terms of service, I, I imagine, and value equals agree. So now it says TOS underscore agree. No, I said the yes. name is... I said the, na the oh, name equals TOS underscore agree and the value is yes. So TOS underscore agree equals yes. Wait a minute. It says name TOS value equals agree. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Okay. So the actual HTML page is different. Ah, so that's a typo. Well, it's me <laughs> jumping ahead of myself. I hadn't really planned to do the demo yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. In the demo, when we look at the code for the demo page, it says name equals toss underscore agree value equals yes. Either way, oh, okay. you're getting a name value pair out. And okay. if we uncheck checkbox and click regenerate form data, oh, gone. Yeah, so TOS uh, underscore agree doesn't ha- isn't there. Yeah. So basically, a checkbox, if it's not checked, is not in the form data. If it is checked, the name and value are in the form data. So that's all I really wanted to drive home. Yeah. Now, a checkbox on its own is probably the most useless thing on the planet. Whether you're visually impaired or visually unimpaired, you need some sort of help with the checkbox. Some text. Like a checkbox without text is the most meaningless thing on the planet. Oh, okay. You're saying the text to the right of it. Right. Oh, okay. So it should be labeled. Ah. And in this case, as a form element, when I say it should be labeled, I mean it should be labeled with the label tag. Ah, now, okay. Now, ARIA would allow you to cheat. If you wanted to write your HTML so it didn't use the label tag, you could do it with ARIA. But from an HTML point of view, the HTML spec is pretty clear on this. You should be labeling your form inputs because if you use the label tag, when you click on the name, the checkbox checks. That's what the label tag does for us. If I click anywhere in the sentence, I agree to something or other, the checkbox ticks. I'm, I'm thinking because I'm trying to figure out where you put that label. Is it, is it inside the, the input type? I'm about to get to that. You have okay. two choices. Okay. With choice one, you start, you open the label, you say label, so angle bracket, label, angle bracket, then you say input, type equals checkbox, value equals agree, end the input, then you put your English, and then you close the label tag. In other words, the label tag contains the input and some text. Oh, that's kind of nice. It's kind of bundled up together. So that is one way of doing it, and that works 99.999% of the time, unless you're one of these people who insist on using tables to lay things out, and then chances are your text is in a different cell to your checkbox. And then you can't do that. So the other way to do it is to say input type equals checkbox, have the input all on its own, and then have the label all on its own, but make sure you give the input an ID, because then you can say label four equals, and then the ID. Oh, okay. Is and one that way you better? Them together. They have the same effect on the page. I find one easier to read than the other. The first one. The first one. Yeah. I find one easier to write than the other. Also the first one. <laughs> yeah. So I will tend to use the first one, but functionally they are identical. Okay. So when a user uses your page, clicking anywhere on the label will check the checkbox. Oh, so oh you didn't say way. that also happens. Okay. I think, I think we may have talked over each other. I, I did try to say that. Okay. Yeah. Actually, your brain was thinking and it wasn't, yeah. (laughs) I know, it doesn't happen that often, so it's kind of weird when when I'm actually thinking. But yeah, okay, so I'm noticing if I click on the text, it is doing the checkbox. I hate it when it doesn't. That's because people are writing English and not using the label tag. Yeah. They're not labeling in the true sense of the word, and it drives me nuts. Oh, oh, like, oh, I have to go all the way over and I have to get precise. Especially if you're using a tablet and you want to tap with your finger. Yeah, well, I are there are many things about our call tracking system and work that make my head explode, and the one that is the most consistently aggravating, even after many years of continuous use, is that I have to find the tiny little checkbox every time I want to tick something. 
because they don't label their inputs. <sighs> yes, I want to enable the CC. No, I can't click on the word CC. Okay, fine. <laughs> click. Oh, I missed. Oh, <laughs> it's mad. Okay. So it is a name value pair. If you forget to give it a value, HTML will give it the default value of on. Hmm. Okay. So if you're happy with that, okay. So you could say name equals something, don't give it a value, and it will become on. That's what it'll be labeled? No, the name. So when the name value pair comes out. Oh, okay. Okay. The value will be on. Okay. The label you always have to write because it can never. Otherwise, it would just label. be a little checkbox with nothing next to it. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So that's checkboxes. And that's not, I, I think you'd agree that's not too evil. That's uh -uh. pretty straightforward. So radio buttons are awfully similar, which is an important difference. So for a start, they are also done with the input tag. The difference being that the type is set to radio. So input type equals radio gives you a single radio button. But of course, a single radio button is a weirdo thing that makes no sense. Imagine a car radio with one channel. Make <laughs> right. So you, you have multiple. So for every option in your radio button group, you make an input tag. So you say input type equals radio button. And then you have a name value pair. So how do you connect all the different inputs together? Well, the answer is if they have the same name, they are part of the same group. Okay. So if you give each of them a name value pair, the value will be different on each of them, but the name will be the same. And the name being the same tells the browser these are multiple options for the same name value pair because ultimately the radio group as a whole collapses to a name value pair. That seems like rewriting a lot of code. And we, and that's smelly. Yeah, tough. In this case, it is smelly. It's right on the page. It is many buttons. In your code, it is many buttons. Okay, so it I'm looking a, at your code. It says input type equals radio, name equals nerd. Type equals radio, name equals nerd. Type equals yep. radio, name equals nerd. Huh. Yep. So if you interact with the form, so you have it on yes. If you click on no and then say regenerate form data, you'll say that it gets the same name value pair, but it just has the value of no. And if you click maybe, you get the value of maybe. If you click yes, you get the value of yes. So the name is the same. It's the value that changes. Yeah. So it's effectively a way of having multiple possible values for the same name. Okay. And it's, as I say, if the name attribute is the same, then the browser will know that there are multiple options for the same thing. And that only one of them gets to be king. And only one of them gets to be king. So as soon as you, if there is one already on, you click on one that's off, the one that's on becomes off, and the one that's off becomes on. Okay. Now, there are some rules here. The HTML5 spec is very clear on this. You may not use the same name in multiple forms. If you have the name nerd, you may not use that name on a different form. On the same page? On the same page. The okay. page is the, the universe. Right? Okay. In, in, in browser land, the page is the universe. All right. Um, so they should all be on the one form. They should all be input type equals radio. You can't have that same name appearing input type equals checkbox. Right, that name should only be associated with other radio buttons, and they should all be together in the one form. Now, from a sanity point of view, they should also all be next to each other on the bloody page. <laughs> right, that's not in the spec. That's just a sanity point of view. Now, <laughs> don't be an anarchist. <laughs> don't. Yeah, exactly. Each individual radio button should be labeled. 
using exactly the same two options we had for checkboxes. Why wouldn't you? That seems obvious. Right. But again, people don't do it on their checkboxes. Why wouldn't they do it on the radio buttons, right? And it has the same effect. I can click on the word maybe and it will check the right. Oh, radio oh, button. oh, by labeled, you mean labeled. <laughs> by labeled, I mean labeled okay. with the tag label. Okay. There is a second requirement, though. The actual group as a whole should also be labeled for the benefit of screen readers. Hmm. A screen reader needs to understand that what does this yes apply to? Well, this yes applies to the question, are you a nerd? This no applies to the question, are you a nerd? Maybe a little applies to the question, are you a nerd? Okay. Visually, you will also need that text. So you're going to have to write that text anyway. But you need to tell the screen reader that this text belongs to this set of options. So we have another ARIA role, the role radio button group or radio group. Hang on, let me check the spelling on that. I think it's radio group. Radio group. It's long, but yeah. it's not ridiculously long. It is long, though. So you've so, got li role equals uh, radio group. Yes. So I'm saying that all of my radio buttons belonging to this group are going to be in the same li tag. So that's what's going to keep them together. And it okay. doesn't matter what the tag is, right? You okay. just tell ARIA okay. they're together in this tag. And you can use whatever tag is sensible and sane. So that you. could be a span. That could be anything. Span, a div. Okay. Could be a field set. Huh? That's okay. not a bad way to do radio buttons with a field set. And then sure. you can put the label into the box. Yeah. Either way, you then have to write the text and it has to be enclosed in something which can be a label tag or a span or a paragraph. It can be any tag. You give it an ID and then you say ARIA labeled by equals. So whatever the tag is that wraps it all together has the role of radio group and an ARIA labeled by equals. I'm looking for it in here. I see so in my area described by. Oh, look at the place. described by. It is described by. It is described by. I have typos to fix. Okay. I'll add it to my list. I keep doing that because in my brain, it should, labels should be labeled by. But no, you're right. It is aria described by. Every time I have said aria labeled by, I have been wrong. It is aria described by. Look at uh. me adding value. Thank you. Oh, your your uh, example is correct. My example, yeah, my final page is correct. Unfortunately, Good. my stuff I wrote as I went along is less correct. Okay, okay. But, so that makes sense. So let me let me see if I can say it back to us. Is uh, we're gonna give it a role, so and we're gonna put that in the, whatever tag we've wrapped this in. In this case, you've got in a yep. list. So we're gonna say role equals radio group, and then Aria described by, and then you mm-hmm. you said nerd underscore desk, and I assume somewhere else you wrote nerd underscore desk. Uh, ID equals nerd underscore desk should appear somewhere there. Probably um, in a label tag or something. In a who tag? I think it's in a label tag, if memory serves. I should look at my own code, and then I wouldn't be assuming. Let's do that. <laughs> oh, it actually comes after this. It's it does the, come after. It doesn't really thing. matter where it is, right? It just has to be somewhere on the page. Okay. Okay, yeah. So right below that, he does the label, and he says, uh, the ID is nerd underscore desk for description. Are you a nerd? Close the label tag. Okay, we're calling that with Aria described by. I should say that, in general, you're going to need a lot of IDs, and you don't want to have clashes, so I have a naming convention. Every checkbox ends in underscore CB, every radio button ends in underscore ORB, and every description ends in underscore desk. That is my personal naming convention. Not a bad one. I looked at it, and I knew what it meant. Plus, it gives you more words. (laughs) Exactly, so more things to be unique, and that's important, because you've got to have uniqueness. Uh, My buttons end in BTN. 
um, because I got one of them in there. Okay, so that's actually all there is to radio buttons. So they're not that dissimilar from checkboxes. It's just they come in groups. Right. And you have to give everyone in the group the same name. Otherwise, they're not in the same group. Now, both radio buttons and checkboxes have this concept of checkedness. <laughs> am I checked or am I not checked? Okay. So there is a property which you can use to make them be checked by default. So when you do a shift refresh on our little sample page, you will notice that yes is checked by default. Ah, yes, it is. If I didn't do anything, the default on an HTML's point of view is never to check anything and wait for the user to do it. So if you want something to be checked by default, you give it the attribute checked and the value checked. So checked equals checked. Huh. How did you know? Let's see. So... You must have. Uh, so oh, okay. But when you code, did it, in, it's a radio button. You said one of the one of the buttons. You told it to be checked. Yeah. So line thirty four. Input type equals radio. Name equals nerd. Value equals yes. Checked equals checked. ID equals nerd. Underscore yes. Underscore or B. Ah. That was a good guess to to check the radio button that said, "Are you a nerd?" Yes. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> okay. It seemed appropriate for our audience. Yeah. So that exists. There is also, in CSS, one of these pseudo-classes. So remember the pseudo-classes always start with a colon. We had colon first child for the first something in a something. Yeah. Uh, we had colon visited for links that we'd already been to, those kind of things. Well, yeah. there is one called colon checked, which will apply to every checkbox or radio button that is checked. So if you wanted to make checked radio buttons green, you could say input colon checked color colon color colon green or something. Ah. So it exists. Now we're going to use it an awful lot in jQuery because remember jQuery uses CSS selectors. So we're actually going to use this CSS selector colon checked in our JavaScript because that's just how we roll. <laughs> So that's that. That's all the new things I want to tell you from an HTML point of view. And we can now look at the code for this sample page, and you will see that it makes use of what I've talked about. So the whole form is contained in a field set. That field set has the role form, and it has an aria labeled by I need to fix. <laughs> I need to RTFM the docs, actually, because I'm wrong <laughs> half the time. And oh, okay. There's a second one. By I'm 99.9% .9 sure I'm correct when I say described by and wrong when I say labeled by. I need to <laughs> double check that before I fix my typos, because otherwise I'll fix the wrong typos. Right, right. But I will fix the typos. Okay, so field set role, and we're saying what the label is. Then we have a legend with an ID of uh, PBS31 form description, and it says a simple form. Not a very interesting label, but it's not a very interesting form. Uh, and so that ID matches the aria described by. Is uh, is I, form a magic word? Because my syntax highlighter has highlighted form, even though it's inside of a, a the legend ID. Uh, that's interesting. And so a radio, the word radio is is uh, highlighted as well. That's I actually, an interesting. Point. I think Code Runner does that sometimes. I think it's I think it's looking too deep into strings. It shouldn't it shouldn't see it as a special word if it's inside a string. To be yeah, honest. yeah. Okay. Okay. So then I decided to put my form inside an uh, an unordered list because that way it's laid out halfway decently. It's a it is a sane thing to do. It is much more sane than sticking it inside a sunning table. Yeah, we learned so like have, that. It was on lesson two, I think. No, no more tables. 
Tables are for tabular data and tabular data only. Okay. So I put them inside a UL. So then inside the first UL, inside the UL, we have one list item, which contains a label, which contains an input type equals checkbox, which contains the text, and then the label ends and the whole row ends, the whole list item ends. And that is the grand total of our checkbox. Therefore, I agree to something or other. Nice and simple. Then on the second quote unquote row inside of our list item, second list item, we say role equals radio group, RA described by equals nerd underscore disc. So the nerd description. Then straight after the label, ID equals nerd underscore disc, are you a nerd question mark and the label. Then we have a label which contains an input and the word yes, and another label which contains the an input and the word no, and another label which contains an input and the words maybe a little. Each of those three inputs are type equals radio, name equals nerd, and then their value is different. Right. I have given everything IDs. I have done that so that we can play with jQuery in a minute. Okay, so we have the three the three inputs, which are each of type radio. They each have the name nerd, and they each have a different value, hence allowing us to have yes, no, maybe. And then we have a button on the bottom, which I have just tied to the act of show me the form data. Then we have an H2 underneath that says the form data and a pre-tag with the ID form data underscore out. And then we end the whole page. So that is the page as it is. And right now it has a small amount of JavaScript attached to it, which is up on the top. And that JavaScript does one thing and one only one thing only. It makes the button work. Hmm. And it's not really what I want to talk to you about today. But if okay. you're curious, we may, you know, if you're curious, it is simply the dollar function for the do this when the page finished loading, which then adds a click handler to the button. And that click handler calls a jQuery function called serialize. And what serialize does is it takes a form and it shows you the data. So when you click the button, we see the form data. That's all that's going on there. You can play around with it if you like, but I just thought I'd mention that. It's not black magic. It's just something we haven't talked about in a while. So what I want to talk to you about is the fact that jQuery can interact with checkboxes and radio buttons because, well, jQuery can do anything, really. So let, let's look at it from that point of view. So when it comes to interacting with a checkbox, the three most important things about checkboxes and radio buttons, to be honest, are their name, their value, and their checkedness. Right? They're the three things that are important about any radio button or checkbox. What is it called? What is its name for the name value pair? What is its value for the name value pair? And is it checked or not? And with jQuery, we can ask the question, what is it now? And we can say, make it be this for each of those three things. So we can get or set. I think of it that way. Yeah. So the easiest one is to get the value. And the jQuery function to get a value is always val. So if you could open, you have that page open already. If you could enable your console by going to develop show error console, if you're in Java, in Safari or Firefox view develop, I think somewhere in there. Anyway, make your console be there. So that's what we're going to be using for all of this code. So we can use the val function to read the current value of the toss checkbox. So you can copy and paste the code in and prove that it works before we describe it, I guess. Okay. So it says dollar sign, open parens, open quote, pound sign, toss underscore agree, underscore CB, close the string, close the parens, dot val, open close parens. 
and it comes back when we run it, and it, yes, yes is the value returned by that function. It does. Okay, so do you remember, because we haven't done jQuery in so long, I, I feel I shouldn't assume I should ask the question. So do you remember what jQuery does when you give it as an argument a string? jQuery does when you give an argument a string. Nope. It treats the string as a CSS selector and goes and finds the relevant tag in the page. So pound sign. Do you remember what pound sign means in CSS? I thought that had something to do with a tag or an ID. It does. I mean, yes, it does. Okay. So in other words, we are saying, give me a jQuery object to represent the tag on the page with the ID toss underscore agree underscore CB. So if you look at the code, you will see that that is the checkbox. The checkbox says input type equals checkbox, name equals toss underscore agree, value equals yes, ID equals toss underscore agree underscore CB. Okay. So by saying dollar and then putting toss underscore agree underscore CB with the hashtag in front of it, that tells us to go do something to that value. Right. So that jQuery, that builds a jQuery object, which represents that tag in the page. Okay. And on that object, we call the instance function val. Okay. And val returns the value attribute. Which is yes. How do we know the so value attribute is what? Okay, so look at that. Look at that tag. So on line, what did I say? It was line twenty-seven. Input type equals checkbox. Name equals us agree. Value equals yes. Yeah. So we have used jQuery to reach in and fetch that for us. Okay. Right. That's all we're doing here. We're just using jQuery. Okay. To... Right. 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 Okay. Now I'm with you. Yeah. So we didn't. We didn't put anything between the parentheses on Val. We just. Uh, uh, yes. Okay. Hold it. And by not putting anything in the parentheses, we're using val in its getter mode. Right. Now let's put something in the parentheses. Let's make the value be boogers. That's just, I, I use boogers everywhere now. You have no idea how often boogers appears in my test scripts and work. Uh, <laughs> my work is done here. <laughs> there we go. I've polluted so if you me. say exactly the same code, but you give val one argument, the string boogers... And then hit the up arrow and run your first one without arguments again. You should now get back boogers. Oh, look at that. Okay. So we have now changed the value associated. So now actually click on the button on the page. Oh, make sure the checkbox is checked. Uh, okay. So click the checkbox. And then click regenerate form data. And now it says toss underscore agree equals boogers. <laughs> so we uh, genuinely have changed it. Oh, interesting. We've act okay. We've actually changed it. We haven't gone in and pretended we changed it. We really did. Okay, oh, it's really changed. So if you do a shift refresh, the page will be back to normal. No yeah. more boogers. Oh, and then we can continue on with our next example. Okay, we're going to be mucking with this page a lot. This poor page is in for some serious muckery today. So that's the first thing, the value. So the second thing we might want to change is the name. Remember, we said name and value and checkedness. So the next thing we're going to look at is the name. The name is an attribute, which means we use jQuery's atter function to access it. And atter needs to be told what attribute. So getter is dot atter name as a string. So if we copy and paste the same this code here, so it's dollar sign, the string, pound sign, toss, underscore, agree, underscore, cb. And this time we're saying dot atter, and then we're giving it one argument, which is the string name. 
And so that that's going to confuse me a little bit there. That's it, a getter, but we're putting something in between parentheses. It sort of feels like a setter to me. It does, but uh, the jQuery adder function is a getter for many things and a setter for many things, which means it takes one argument when it's getting and two arguments when ah, it's setting. Ah, okay. All right. So when we say, we ask it just for what is the name attribute now, we get back toss underscore agree. Okay. So if we then hit the up arrow and we put name, comma, and then another string, uh, what are, I don't know what I say in the show notes, but boogers will do. So we say name becomes, or maybe boogers underscore agree or toss underscore yeah. boogers. I don't know. I'm going with toss underscore boogers. You can call okay. it whatever you like. So now we run it with a two argument form. We're in setter mode. So that will happen. And then we hit the up arrow twice to get it back into getter mode and hit the command again. And oh, look, it's now toss underscore boogers. It is. And if we click the button after we check the checkbox, we say toss underscore boogers equals yes. <laughs> Sounds like an instruction. Toss yeah. those boogers over there. Okay. <laughs> so we have now get and setted the name and the value. So the last thing left is the checkedness. <laughs> Okay. The word I've made up, I'm sorry. Um, actually, before you go into the... Okay. Uh, Checkedness. Yeah, we'll get back to the checkedness, actually. So that was all in the nice, simple, easy checkbox. There's only one of those. I'm guessing the, the radio buttons are going to be more complex. The radio buttons are more complex, but we learned the J- we learned the CSS we need about two weeks ago, which is not an accident. Do you remember we learned about the square brackets where we could do attribute based searching nope but i believe Where we you. had href begins with https make it green yeah i do remember that did we use square brackets yeah. on that we use square brackets for that so the square brackets mean whatever comes in here is an attribute so name okay. is an attribute so if we want to see how many check how many radio buttons are there in the radio button group nerd oh right because there's link. not one of them many of them right exactly so if we stick that, copy paste that code there, so I'll describe it. But so this time we're saying dollar and we're giving it a string. So the string is a CSS selector and the CSS selector is input open square bracket name equals quote nerd quote close square bracket. So the first thing input has no period in front of it, no pound in front of it. So what does that mean it is? It's equivalent to just saying P. Okay, so it's just a tag. It's just a tag. Okay. So you're saying input tags, and then we have open square brackets. So input tags that have the name name of nerd. All right. Which means that this time jQuery is not going to find a thing. jQuery is going to find, in our case, three things. Because we have three radio buttons. Whose name are nerd? Whose name are nerd? Our nerd? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that. They'd be having that nerd name. And we get three of them. Okay. Now, in theory, we could have something else on the page with an input, which is an input tag and has the name nerd. That will be bold because the HTML spec says don't do that. But people do bold things. So if we want it to be really specific, what we actually want is all input tags of type radio with the name nerd. So we can do that by just adding another pair of square brackets and saying type equals radio in the other square brackets. And then we have input tags whose type is radio and whose name is nerd. And that, shockingly, is also three. Because we didn't do anything bold. We didn't do anything bold, exactly. So it's all good. Now, we could also say how many inputs on the whole page are checked. doesn't matter whether it's the checkbox or whether it's a radio button. How many inputs of any kind are checked? Oh, because they both have the same 
that value of checkedness, checkedness or so attribute. We can say dollar and then the string input colon checked. And then we call dot length on that. So if you run that, you will see that when you have only the radio button checked, you will get one. But then if you tick the little tick box above it, you'll get two. And if you untick the tick box, you get one again. Yep. So colon checked is finding all inputs that are checked, be they radio or be they um, checkbox. By the way, I would like the record to show that Bart did tell me this right now and that I will later on say I've never seen it before. <laughs> good, good. The nice thing is I always have show notes to back myself up. Yeah, I know, but I just like would like to register it because Bart and I talked about coding for an hour before we started. So it's it's the, it, we're, we might be a little bit of buffer overflow here. I'm just saying. I'd just like to register Fine. that I, I will say never seen it before in my life. Good. Okay. So <laughs> the final thing is we can use jQuery to find the checkedness of a specific thing. And so our sample code here is dollar, which is past the string, pound sign, toss underscore agree underscore CB dot prop check, because jQuery considers checkedness a property. Ah. Not an attribute, a property. So it uses jQuery's prop function. And again, like Atter, prop expects one argument in get mode and two arguments in set mode. So there are other properties. Another property that we will talk about in detail soon is disabled. Another property is visible. So there, okay. are, there are properties, multiple of them. So if we say that and we run that, we will get back, uh, what do we get back? False and true. Depending on whether also it's true checked. as we tick or untick. Exactly. This is a great example, and I'm sure you didn't pick it by accident, but this is how they go. Yeah, nice try submitting your form without hitting that. I agree to the terms of service. Bingo. Exactly. <laughs> they will use a little bit of JavaScript to say, is it checked? No. Uh-huh. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so we can also then give a second argument to prop check. And that second argument should be a Boolean. If we set it to true, it will check the box. If we set it to false, it will uncheck the box, regardless of what the current state is. So if it already is unchecked and we set it to false, well, it'll stay false. It'll stay unchecked. But if it is unchecked and we set it to true, it will become checked. Oh. Right? That's so you can freaky. The box. Yeah, well, look, that's what jQuery does, right? We're interacting with the real page here with JavaScript. So it will, it will become checked. Uh, it doesn't toggle it. It keeps no, it, it checked. Oh, you said it, it would. It you, you said it would no, no, check and check. Oh, that was the previous one. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, so no, I'm just saying that if you set it to false, it will be false. If it's already false, it will stay at false. If, you know what? It will be whatever you make it be, whether it has to change or not. You're saying make it be, make it so, basically. In Captain Picard. <laughs> uh, and then finally, so we can also let's. It's not an unreasonable thing. To want, without me giving these things IDs. So I gave these things IDs because that way it's easier to write short little pieces of code to show you prop and checked without having clutter in the way. But in the real world, what we actually want to do is tick the box whose value is yes. That's the actual problem we're solving. Okay. Right? We want to set the value of the radio button group to yes. Right? We don't really want to go look at our code, find the ID. We just want to set it to yes. So that's what the next example does. Now, it's very long. So, well, it's not very long, but it's longer. So if you copy and paste that one and shove it into the uh, shove it into the console, we can see that it does work. Right. 
So you said look for the input that's type radio, name nerd, value yes, and set the property to checked. The check property. Uh, check property to true, sorry. Exactly. Which is actually more than one to do in English. Let me see if I can say that again. Is and that's because uh radio type inputs have uh different properties, one of which is checkedness. And we're gonna check Mm -hmm. we're gonna check it change it to true. We're setting it to true. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's it. another. So that's that's a very useful thing to be able to do is to say, I want to make this form have yes for this radio button group. You don't need to remember what its ID is. Just say that radio button to that group type equals radio name equals whatever value equals yes. Make it be checked. Another okay. thing we might want to do is the opposite of that. What is the current value represented by that radio button group? Oh. Which, what is the value of the currently checked item? Right, that's the inverse of what we just did. Yeah, and that's what the next example does. So, if you again, if we copy it, run it, we'll see that it does work. Because as you, so paste it in there, run it, and then mess around with the radio with the radio button set, and you'll see that it does it does work. Yeah, and in this one, you said uh, look for the input type radio with the name nerd. Then you said colon checked, and that means what? What is the CSS colon? Pseudo class for checkedness. So this will only find inputs of type radio with the name nerd who are checked. Um, so just like colon visited meant a link that was visited, colon checked means an input that is checked. But why does it, it, it doesn't find them, it returns a value of yes or no. Why is it okay, yes so or no? It finds them until we get to the period, and then we go dot val. Then we're calling the val function we saw before, which gets the value. Okay. That's why the final output is yes or no or maybe. Hmm. Okay. Right. Until I wanted it to be true or false or something, but okay. Well, no, because we're saying I want the value of the checked item. Because what you want is oh. the value. Oh, I didn't even notice. Okay, I completely understood what it was doing. You were looking for the one that is checked, and I then the telling me what is the value of the one that you find that is checked. Okay. Yes. Okay. That's, that's why it's yes or that no. That is ultimately because it might at say a high maybe. level. At a high level, that's what you want out of a form as a programmer. What value is the user saying? Well, the user is saying yes, or the user is saying no, or the user is saying maybe. Yeah. You yeah. don't you okay. care that it's coming about through a checkbox being checked. You just want the value. Right. That's right, how right. you get the value. Okay. And that is, wow. I mean, that is from the point of view of what you might want for as a JavaScript programmer, get or set the value, get or set the name. Get her set the checkedness. Figure out in a radio button group what is checked. Make something be checked. They're all the things we'd want to do. So we've actually covered all the bases here. Right? Anything we, we can do by clicky pointy, we've just been able to do in jQuery. <laughs> by clicky pointy. I like the HTML stuff. It, it's, uh, I, I like the JavaScript stuff because I'm starting to get the hang of it. But um, it, it's keeping my brain a lot more active than the, uh, than the uh, HTML stuff. But the HTML stuff is purely descriptive, which makes it nice. Yeah, yeah, it's not as weird. <laughs> There's no state to keep in your mind. There's no concept of variables coming and going. There it is. Look, it's there. Read right it. there, you can see it. Yeah. All right. Well, we yeah. have kept people after class, late after class, on a Friday night here. So uh, it's, I know it's only a oh, Wednesday. I wish it was Friday, Allison. <laughs> All right, Bart. This was uh, this was fun. That was interesting the whole time. I really, really enjoyed it. Excellent. As I say, next time we're on to drop downs rather Woo-hoo. than radio buttons. That's the next most simple, right? Just a drop down that you change.
And as I say, we've already talked about the JavaScript we're doing. So that is that is the teasing all done. So yeah, until next time, happy computing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. We are now supported by Patreon. So if you go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can pledge your support to the show in weekly installments. If you don't have money to spare, I understand that. And it would be great if you used our Amazon affiliate links when you buy things on Amazon anyway, and a little bit of money goes to help the show. I love feedback, so please send me email at allison at podfeed.com. And you can join in our Facebook group over at podfeed.com slash Facebook and our community at podfeed.com slash Google+. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.